You are now listening to the Who, What, How podcast hosted by Jared Wright. Let's go. Hey, good afternoon, good morning, good evening. This is the Who, What, How podcast. And this is the first episode, so this is how we're kicking it off. I'm super excited. Thank you for everybody who's here who's listening. Uh, we're starting off with a great topic, I think, and we have a phenomenal guest on today. And I, I, I would try to intro this person, but I think he's going to do a much better job of introducing himself. So who we have today is Drek. Drek, who who are you? I am... Well, if you're calling me Drek, you probably met me on stage as a DJ. I'm also an author, and I'm an international HIV... Sorry. HIV activist and advocate. And grab something to drink. Awesome. And, uh... So I've kind of... Depending on where you met me, d can be a few different people. And uh, and and I guess let's 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 talk about. I guess we can start off with the with what you started off with. So let's start about let's talk about the DJ stuff, man. Um, yeah. <laughs> what's uh, what type of DJ are you into? Like EDM? Are you into hip hop? You know, what, what what's your genre? A little genre? bit of all of it. Okay. A little bit of all of it. I've uh, been all through clubs for the past fifteen years. I've worked out. Uh, yeah. Through Florida, up through North Georgia, you know, I've done different radio things. I've done different promo ads, different stuff. I've put together music for a couple. I've remixed for some artists. I've taken like independent artist music and remixed it. Done different things. There's a lot of fun stuff to be had with that. I've really enjoyed my DJ work and still enjoying it today. Kind of got away from the night from the nightclub thing because I'm just staying up till three a.m. when you're almost forty. Not as much fun as it was in my twenties. <laughs> now I understand that. So man. now I'm just uh, kind of sticking to private events and weddings and stuff like that, and really enjoying doing that. Do you have any like stories that really stand out? Like something crazy happened on a specific night or a moment happened where it was just like you was just in the zone or, or you uh, one of the funniest stories from the stage would be I ended up working for senior frogs down in Orlando, Florida. Mm-hmm. And I was jumping back and forth down there. And I use a DJ system called the emulator. Actually, I'm not sure what they call it now. The company got sold, but when I originally bought it, it was called the emulator. But it's a 42-inch piece of glass that is all touchscreen. So I'm standing behind this huge sheet of glass, and I DJ, and it's up in front of me. So, you know, like the Iron Man screens, like in the original movies, like doing screens inside. That's what it looks like when you see me on stage. I'm doing pretty much the same thing. I'm just grabbing your song, playing on the deck and play, scratching and doing all that right in front of you instead of on the table where you just kind of see my hands moving. You're actually seeing me. My hands are up in the air on the screen. That's crazy. So it's a glass, transparent glass. They can see you directly, but what you're seeing is like where the tracks are and kind of like picking one and throwing yeah, it on the deck. You're seeing the back side of it, but yeah. you're seeing through the screen. You've been able to see right through it. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. I'll man. send you some pictures and videos of it. Okay. All right. That's that's what's up. So that that's really cool. I um I always wanted to like learn how to DJ. I've always felt like like DJs are just like they just control the energy. Like they're able to shift oh, yeah. so many things yeah, in the no. room. Like it's it's so crazy. Um, so you said that you were a DJ. You also said that you were an author. So, uh, what, what type of, I guess, what books have you written? Where can we find them? I wrote a book all about my life and just the medical journey. I've 
four years ago, I okay. guess now. Jeez, I'm getting old. But it's available on Amazon. You can get a hard copy. There's an ebook. It's called Operation D Rec. And it goes all the way from the story I will tell in just a few minutes, but it gives a rundown up to about the age of 30, I'm going to say, is when the boat kind of ends. I didn't think I was going to make it as close to 40 as I'm getting. Wow. So I'm actually in the process right now of writing another book. Okay, congratulations, man. Congratulations. Get a heads up on that. Like, I right, right. <laughs> writing another book. And okay. The uh, second one is going to be more. Um, I think my tentative title is like Lessons Through the Pain. So each um, I will tell like a either a story of being in a surgery or some kind of medical scenario or some lesson I learned from it. Got it. Got it. So every single time I've had to go in the hospital, I've come out with new knowledge about myself. Is it, is it because they're learning more about certain things or is it because there's things that are constantly changing inside your body or is it both? It's both. I mean, the medical technology is advancing so fast and my body's aging. So I'm having to constantly like, it's a constant like rebuild. It's like rebuilding an engine that you never completely finish rebuilding. Right. Yeah. Cause you have that on top of just the regular stuff, like, you know, just regular checks that and tend to become more right. Pain. Right. <laughs> So, um, so let's talk about, let's talk about the story of you. Um, you know, I, I had heard some things, we, I, some things that you spoke about or some speaking engagements in the past that you've had. Um, and your story kind of touched, touched my soul in a way that's just like, man, like I, I just couldn't imagine, um, getting that news and things like that or, 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 or or finding out things in a way, or or just discovering that being the journey that I have to take, right? Like that, I think that that was like probably in a way for me to like wrap it in. Like, so let's talk about what what happened, what started the journey, your discovery, and then everything that's kind of happened since then, and and up until this point. So if you don't mind, like let's let's hear about it. All right, first I'm going to grab the keys to the to the DeLorean because we're going all the way back to 1985. I am three months old, and my parents are told that I have a heart murmur, and it needs to be corrected. So I'm sent to Augusta, Georgia, to the medical college, and they proceed to kind of rushed my family through all the pre-op procedures, one of which was the main one, which was he's going to need blood. This is an open-heart surgery. And family wanted to be able to donate. There wasn't time. They were told there was not time to do that. We had to go. So go into surgery. They find out it wasn't truly a murmur. It was what was known as transposition of the great arteries, which for anybody, you know, that had children in the early 80s or late 80s, I was what was known as a blue baby because the blood flow was actually running backwards. So the oxygenated blood stayed around my heart and the unoxygenated blood was being pumped out all the way around. So my lips were kind of a bluish color. It was what was known as a blue baby. So they got me through the surgery. I was in, I looked like the Robocop scene, like where it's just, he's like cut in half and there's just tubes and wires and everything and they're putting together. Yeah. There's no pictures or videos because back then there just wasn't cameras and stuff like there are today. But um, it was pretty rough from what families told me. I was in the, I was in, um, 
recovery for three months. Took me a full three months of pediatric or cardiac care, pediatric cardiac care units. Three months before they finally got me out to my own room and then finally released home. And everything was going good, except during surgery, there was a minor error, and they hit the stenatic node, which is the electrical powerhouse of the heart. Mm. When you interrupt that, that causes the need for a pacemaker. So they implanted a pacemaker. So my family got the news that not only did they have a kid, but now a really radical scar and that goes all the way from my collarbone all the way down to my belly button. I am now battery operated. Wow. <laughs> Which I'm so sure they were thrilled about. <laughs> yeah, like, hold on. So let, let me let me stop you for a second, if you don't mind. So like, in this process, have you spoken to your parents of kind of like emotionally spiritually, mentally, what challenges they were having with having a three-month-old baby having to go through this process? Like, They told me that it was like just a blur. Okay. Okay. Like, they, it was a really like rushed, like get him into surgery. Like we've got to go now. Like this extremely urgent, which... Now, looking back at it, it wasn't, <laughs> it really wasn't as urgent as it was made. Got it. Okay. So you, uh, they hit, they hit the, they hit the nerve in the heart that kind of powers the heart. They, now that requires a pacemaker go in. And, and this is all yeah, like the speakers implanted. It's it was in my stomach. Okay, and this is all like you're still like four, five, six months old at this point. No, this was during the original surgery. So they were oh, doing. They did the surgery where they repaired the heart. Yeah. And then they also had to implant a pacemaker. Got it. Okay, so all of this stuff happened, and you're still three months old. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. All right. So you go home and I guess what happens next? So what 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 happens with your parents and you at that after that? And pretty much just a chill, laid back, fun, just everyday childhood. Like wasn't really, really restricted. I mean, had a little bit because there's a pacemaker in my stomach. But I also grew up, you know, kind of aspiring to be a Ninja Turtle. So I was a normal kid. I jumped off furniture. I climbed trees. Like it wasn't, wasn't too different from any other kid until I started school. And my family started to realize that I was the smallest kid in class. This was from kindergarten all the way to now. Like, I'm still, like, usually the smallest guy around. I get excited if I'm out somewhere and somebody is shorter than me. Like, that will make my night. <laughs> like, that's how I make friends. I'm like, I'm not the shortest one in the bar. Like, I'm not the shortest one out in the middle of the night. Like, that always made my night. Like, if somebody came in and they were shorter than me, <laughs> how how so, would actually bring for their friends and if they were, knew they were shorter than me. So how tall are you? I'm five foot. Okay. 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 So I am I am like arguing with theme park attendants to like get on rides. Oh man, no. <laughs> I had to like argue my way onto a couple roller coasters. <laughs> Stuff like like once again, like stuff I just wouldn't even think about. Man. All right. So you're a lot smaller than the children your age. And so does that cause is that like cause for some concern? Is your are your parents like not are they tall people? Or are they just like are your like cousins family? Like, is this like you're that drastically different from everybody else in your family Everybody's at this point? A- 
pretty much average height, so, you know, 5'6 to 5'11. Got it. Not anybody super tall, like, not anybody, like, over... There's a couple family members over six foot. Yeah. And that's, like, cousins and things. Like, no, like, direct family members are extreme, like, on a higher end, like, range of tall. Right, right. Okay. So it really wasn't a, like... I was never going to be that that tall, but another seven, eight, nine inches would have been great. And I just, <laughs> I, I feel it. I was, uh, I was 4'11 when I was 17 and I, I sprouted up. So I, I had some similar concerns. I was like, whoa. Um, but yeah, like those little things, like it's, it's wild. Yeah, so you so now you're you're in that mode, you're going to school, you're a lot smaller than the children around you. And so what like did you like did you go to the doctor or your parents take you to the doctor and say, you know, we noticed that D Rack is a lot smaller than his peers? Is there something that we need to look at, et cetera? Or Yeah, I was going to a doctor. I had a pediatrician, we were going to regular, I had a cardiologist going to regular. And they both just basically said that I would always be a smaller child because of the heart condition. That the heart condition was what impacted my height and weight. And that was just, this was back before we all had computers with us every moment, every day. There wasn't the ability to reach out into like the knowledge available now. There wasn't a Google. I mean, that your friends and family members were Google. Like, if you, so, you know, if a doctor said something, that was what you just kind of, that's what you took. And there was no, we didn't think, you know, get a, get a second opinion. And right. now I'm the first person to always advise somebody if they get any kind of medical diagnosis, go ask somebody else. If you're not happy with what one doctor says, go see what somebody else says. Let them look at the same stuff and see if they give you the same answer. Okay. There's nothing wrong with going to get the second opinion. And a lot of people feel bad about doing that, especially with their doctors, because it is such a relationship that you build with your doctor. You don't ever want to think that they might be missing something or they might be hiding something. In my case, there was a lot being hidden. And and so when you got the second opinion... In this particular case, what what did we discover? Well, I didn't get the second opinion until I was 16. Okay. I was, I had gone and had the third pacemaker implanted. Pacemakers only last um, anywhere from seven to 10 years. It's about average for one. Okay. So I was going to have my third one implanted. So they take one out, they put another one in. It's really a weird process because they've got two wires that are in my chest that are still in my chest from the original pacemaker that ran up and you know, they're spiked into your heart and they just clip the bottom and then they tie a new pacemaker in. So you back up, send you on your way. But when I was 15, I had the surgery done, and I came out of it really, really rough. I actually needed CPR to start breathing again. I didn't come out of anesthesia well at all. And when I got home, I had a cough I couldn't get rid of. So I ended up having a teacher coming to to my house, doing all my schooling from home for a few months. And a friend of my mom's recommended a pulmonologist that I go see him. <laughs> At this point, I was four foot tall, 55 pounds, and I'm 16 years old. Wow. 
And the first thing this guy said when I met him was, what are your medical conditions? And I kind of sat back and I said, nice to meet you too. <laughs> I said, I've got a bad heart. And he was the first person to ever tell me, your heart has nothing to do with your height or weight. There's something else here. And he ran me through every single test he could think of and that he could do. And everything came back negative. Every single thing came back negative. So he kind of threw his, <laughs> threw his hands up and he sent me to the one place I did not want to go, which is You'll understand this. He sent me to Gainesville, Florida. No bulldog ever wants to go to Gator Country. No, never. Then he sent me there to go see an endocrinologist. So I got to whole new doctor, new words, big words. I didn't know what it meant. All I knew was that they were going to give me human growth hormone shots. Or I was going to have to give them. Actually, I had to give myself. Wow. My mom did. I still can't give myself a shot. <laughs> but it worked. Human growth hormone worked. It's what all the baseball players and like different athletes got busted for using. Yeah. Because it does make a huge impact. <laughs> like if anybody ever thought like that was bullshit, like it's not bullshit. Like you, you really do pack on weight <laughs> and everything from it. But I gained a foot in height and gained 50 pounds. Yeah, that's crazy. In about 18 months, about 16, 18 months. And I went in for a checkup and I found out that my doctor was using my medical records to teach students. She was the head of endocrinology. So what they would do is they would take my chart and they just block out my name and they need personal info and they just give those copies to these med students and you know that's your patient they present with this this and this what do you do here's everything in their history one girl in the class raised her hand and said he had blood in 1985 and I don't see a record of an HIV test anywhere so I, I met the med student that day, and it was brought up, you know, would you mind submitting for an HIV test just so we can rule that out? Submitted to the test, had it done. Took two weeks. That's how long ago this was, about 20 years ago now. Yeah, 22 yeah. years now. And so... Go back to the doctor. I've got my family with me. I've got my grandparents with me. And they started pulling people out of the room one by one. So I kind of knew what the test results were before they ever told me. I remember that day very vividly to an extent. I remember walking down the hall to the room where they had my family. They opened the door and I saw my parents crying. So nobody had to tell me this husband. I didn't need to be told what the results were. Right. I already knew. So the next phase from that was go home been going to take us a little while to figure this out and to get a treatment plan built for you. And there's a possibility of two different doctors that I could have had. And they told me, they said, one guy is extremely like, strict by the book. The other guy is a little more laid back. He's, you know, and patients really seem to like him a little bit better. He's more personable. He's, can laugh with him. And so I knew the doctor I wanted. But I didn't get to pick. 
So for two weeks, I went home and I just broke down like every night. And I just buried my head in the headphones. Just kept headphones off. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want to go out. I needed those two weeks just to like get that feeling out because I thought I was going to die. When I heard the words, they told me directly, you have AIDS. I was diagnosed with AIDS. I had wasting syndrome. My body was on the verge of shutting down completely. That's why it took two weeks for doctors to sit down and plan out my my treatment plan because it was going to be very touch and go. There was going to be only so much that they could put me through Yeah, so fast. And luckily, when I went back, I got the cool, laid-back, fun dogger. Okay. And the first thing he said to me was, Padrana, He wouldn't talk to me until I did that. He spoke to your spirit, man. Let's have that moment for a second, man. Like, first off, let me let me just pause you for a second because there's a lot of there's a lot of like coincidences that aren't coincidences that happen. So, the doctor teacher is utilizing your record specifically in a classroom. And there's a student in this classroom that's on her journey to becoming a doctor. And she had the ability to look at your chart. This is why perspective and life and human beings and and ideas and open open-mindedness is so important. And and having as many people good people, good-willed, good-hearted people in your corner and counsel, like, it's so important. So she looked at your chart and said, hey, he had a blood transfusion and he's never been tested. Let's, let's see that. But then let's also talk about the humility of the teacher to listen. Right? Like, let's take this information that this student is giving and let's apply said information because I know who the file belongs to. This isn't something that, this isn't a hypothetical situation like you're treating it in this classroom. Like this is a real person that we can help right now. And application gets done. You get the test results back and you have another opportunity to get the doctor that may be speaking to you medically, but you got the doctor. You got the doctor that's speaking to you spiritually first. Like I'm not even going to talk to you medically until your spirit is at a place that you are able to receive what I'm getting ready to tell you. Like that's just like. Like we 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 live in a time now where like spirit life is so dead and we posture all the time on our phones looking down that we forget to look up. And he's like, look up. Don't look down. Look up. That's just powerful, man. That's just like that. What he told me after is even more powerful. So what did he, he say after told that? Me, he, he told me I would go to his funeral. Mm. He doesn't go to mine. Mm. And you're you're 16? You're 16. Like 
I, I like. I just. That's just. I I don't even know. Like at sixteen years old, having somebody say, "Yo, listen, this is not the end for you. Matter of fact, you're gonna outlive me." And I don't have to face the same thing that you're facing. But I know you are because I'm going to work on your spirit and your body. Like you're going to do this through this and I'm going to be with you until I'm no longer with you. Not until you're no longer with me. That's crazy. So your parents, like, so once again, because I'm, I'm a, I, I'm, I'm a parent. So like, in my head, I'm like, if my son got diagnosed with something, not even like HIV, it could be anything. I'm like freaking out. Like my son got COVID, I'm like freaking out. You know what I mean? Like, oh my gosh, and that's nowhere near the impact of like HIV, especially in that time, right? Like. It was so totally different, the relationship that we have with HIV today. Or maybe it's not. And maybe I'm ignorant to some of the things that are still the same. And, you know, obviously we'll talk about that. Yeah, Yeah, so we'll talk about that. But it's just like to hear that and that time for your son and you and kind of like up until this point, like there's always been things going on. So you've had the heart situation. You've had the pacemaker situation. Now we're like, now we have this. And you're and and now with all of that, as you're going through these challenges in your life and in your body, the doctor's like, I know what your story is. I see it right here one way, but you're gonna outlive me. That's crazy. Yeah. Keep going, man. Keep going. I'm sorry. Like that's he just actually he was an awesome, awesome doctor. And me and him had our moments where I wouldn't talk to him. I mean, there were, he got me in a bunch of studies and different things. And that was great, but it was bad in the fact that all these studies meant more blood. So I was going every month. And there were months where I was given 18, up to 18 tubes of blood every time I would see them. That's how many tests and everything that they were watching and monitoring with me. Wow. So, so you, so I guess like at this point now, this is all through high school. Yeah. Did you have I like, actually dropped out of high school. I was getting ready to say that. So yeah. your, your high school so life. Yeah. Did you end up getting like a GED or did you end up? Yes. Okay. 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 Yeah, I was getting ready to say that. Like, there's no way, there's no way possibly that you're going through that monthly and like still expected to execute at a, as a student and get good grade. Like, there's just no way. No, I am. Um, when I was younger, I was in a Catholic school and a private school up until eighth grade. So when I went to get my, when I dropped out and went to get my GED, it was boom, boom, boom. Right. Jumped through, you know, pretty quick. Just got that out of the way, like, so I could focus on getting better. So you're, so I guess you're, you graduated now. What were the, so you're going through the test, but what type of treatments are you receiving at this point? Oh, they, um, one of the worst where I didn't actually talk to my doctor for, I was in the hospital. No, I started treatment with him. About two weeks, I came back. They gave me a bunch of pills. They gave me a bunch of books. They gave me all the stuff to read. And I read every line of every book of everything I could find on this virus. If I was going to have a new enemy, I was determined to learn all about it, mm-hmm. and I did. And it was about six months after I had been on treatment, I had been told that I would land in the hospital. 
And the reason this guy knew that was because my viral load, which is the amount of HIV in your blood, in your body at that point, he said once it starts to drop, once the meds start to work, he said we will find hidden viruses and things that you've been living with that were kind of in the background. So I fell, I ended up getting pneumonia right in the middle of being in treatment. So I landed in the hospital for two weeks getting treated for pneumonia. And when they had me in the hospital, they really got to go, you know, kind of hog wild with the diagnostic testing that they wanted to do. Right. And one of the worst things that they did was a spinal tap. I will never forget that day. And, um, I didn't talk to the doctor for like three days because I was so just over it. Like they had been putting me through x-rays and dye tests and different, they're taking blood every day, checking different meds, doing this and kidneys. I mean, just running every test they could think of at me to the point I just got exhausted. And I found out that I could leave the hospital. <laughs> like you could leave when you wanted? <laughs> well, they actually gave me a pass. They gave okay, me a pass right. to leave for a few hours. Okay. They said, yeah, you can get out for a few hours. So the nurse came in and they took the IV out. And he let me go. And this is, everybody thinks this story is a joke, but it's 100% true. My family will back it up. And I believe I put it in the book. We went to go eat lunch at Hooters, which was right down the road from the hospital. Look at D-Rack going to Hooters, man. It gets better. (laughs) I walk into Hooters. We get our table. And the waitress is also one of my nurses. And she is really not happy to see me. Is she not happy so to see Hold on, wait. At the moment of she's at work and she's seen me at both of her jobs. Mm. And she knows that I'm supposed to still be at her other job. So her first question was, who in the world did you con to get out? <laughs> <laughs> And I had to explain to her, I've got to be back in about three hours. I'm coming here to eat lunch, and we're going to go to a movie and walk around the mall for a little bit. And then I'm heading back up. And I saw her the next morning, and it was it was the, the entire hospital knew. So many people knew that the president of the hospital came to meet me. Wow. Like, my story was that, like, monumental for the entire campus, that there was somebody that had gone through as much as I had gone through and being treated there. And there's so many fun, and there's some good stories in the book about that. Like, I had one procedure done there. I went in, I was dumb. I wore Georgia Bulldog pajama pants. And I forget what surgery or procedure I was having done. It was something cardiac, I think, because everything got switched down there. So I had a cardiologist, and all my treatment moved there. I'm pretty sure it was something cardiac. Well, I came out of surgery, and... Of course, when you come out of surgery, they remove all your clothes. I woke up to a nurse with a washcloth of washing my arm. Like, what in the world are you doing? I'm still kind of woozy, not all the way awake. She explains to me that I'm covered in head to toe with Florida Gator temporary tattoos. So that is what you get if you go into the University of Florida and have surgery and you're bold enough to wear 
Georgia Bulldogs put y'all in bands. They're going to get you back. That's funny. That's funny. So, had like really cool, fun medical teams down there that, you know, made it not as rough as it could have been. Like, we laughed a lot. I also, like, let me pause for a second um, and talk about like people in the medical field, like real heroes, man. Like, like real heroes, like frontline impacts for people medically, like, it's like, and it's so much like knowledge in that space. There's so much new discovery in that space. There's so much like understanding of the body in that space. There's so much care and kindness in that space. Um, And when you don't have medical challenges, you tend to forget that there are people out there that are serving these people every day. Like, you know what I mean? Like when you don't, or you're not in the hospital, you, you you tend to not understand what nurses do. All that nurses do. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it makes such a eight percent of your time is spent with your nurses. Right. Like you don't like it's almost like it's like, oh, you know, she's a she's a nurse. I need to talk about like, you know what I mean? Like we almost like dismissive sometimes in society to like the impact of and, you know, we kind of had it um, during COVID. We're like, oh, the heroes. But they've been heroes. It's not something new. It's just that this is something that everybody's affected by now. Right. Like there's a, a huge part of the population that's affected by things every day that these people are heroes have been heroes in. So for you to have the community of people around you, like with the intentionality of making your stay both comfortable and Florida Gator uncomfortable, (laughs) Um, but making it specific to you too, right? Like we're going to do this thing specifically to him because we have that relationship with him and also because he had balls big enough to come in here with some Georgia, some Georgia Bulldog pajama pants on. Like, what was he thinking? He knew, he knew this was coming. He knew this was coming. So it's just, um, that's, that's just super dope. That's just super dope. So as an adult now, are there any like situations, stories where that like have stood out to be like, damn, I can't believe they treated me like that. Or like, like, when they found out, or I can't believe that, uh, that 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 was the response to hearing about my situation. We're looking for good stories or bad stories. Um, I guess both. We can do both. Let's do both. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do a, a good one first. All right, a good one. Um, see, it's been. I was there, I think, this is whenever they put this last pacemaker in, I found out I was in an atrial flutter, which means your heart is like having little miniature seizures. So they had to do this. They put this pacemaker in, and they didn't program it. They gave me a month to take off, and they were going to do what was called a cardiac ablation. So I go in to do the cardiac ablation, and that's where they go in with the RF probe, and they map out your heart, and they find all the little spots where there's electrical interferences. And they're using a probe that's the size of an end of a pen, and they're just, they're burning those spots. So it blew my mind when I first read about it. Because it's like working on the engine while it's running, basically. So I couldn't even like wrap my head around what they were going to do. So they did the procedure. I went in 7.30, 7.45 in the morning. I came out and it was just before 6 o'clock in the afternoon. I thought the clock was wrong. And then they were rushing me down the hallway. And I'm still kind of out of it. 
So all I see is nurses above me and everybody's talking about me and nobody's talking to me. I didn't realize I was cognizant enough to like be awake awake yet. So I look back and I see just a flash of a coat. So I reach back and I just happened to catch it. And that was my cardiologist. <laughs> and I pulled him up to the bed and he realized I was awake. And he put his hand on my chest and he said, everything went great. He said, we went way longer than expected. I was in the uh, the procedure room, what they call them now, for eight hours. My God. So this poor man was looking through binoculars for eight hours, running the soul probe through my heart and burning all these spots out. And I've got the video I can send you where it shows the mapping and how bad my heart was. Yeah. Wow. Well, what had happened when they went in, they originally tried to do the probe, the cath of my left leg, which is where they go for cardiac, because it's the quickest way to get to your heart. They found out that that artery dead end somewhere in my chest. They couldn't get through. It's all blocked off. So they had to cut my other leg and go at the right side. Oh, God. So I came out, and I'm wrapped up, like, bandaged up to the point, like, it looks like I'm wearing a diaper. And I have to lay flat for four hours. I don't do well laying flat. I never have. I don't lay on my back. I sleep on my side. So this poor nurse that had me for about 40 minutes, you know, told me, she's just, you're, you're going to have to tough it out. Well, if she got off work and I got a different nurse and she comes in and she was really nice about it. She goes, you've got to lay flat for the four hours. She goes, we can't let you up because there's a risk you can bleed out. Mm. You stand up, you can bleed out. You can be done like that. If you get up, don't follow the instruction. But this girl was so, so nice. Like, she put pillows under my neck and under my head, like, just getting me to prop up a little bit. Yeah. And every hour, she would move the bed just a little bit more to sit me up where I could get comfortable. And she was putting pillows and rolling up towels behind my back, getting me as comfortable as I can be the entire night. And if it hadn't been for me and her, I mean, if it hadn't been for her, I would have probably been dumb enough to stand up and probably not be here today. Wow. Wow. Because they, they nicknamed me the Terminator. Every time I was in the hospital, I would, they would, aka Terminator. Because they, my doctor, both all of my doctors have said, like, I just don't stop. So let's um, let's pivot. So let's talk about you know. I have some questions. I kind of want to. I kind of want to give you the opportunity to speak to them. Um, the first question is, how can we encourage and increase regular testing and knowing your status in general, uh, as well as specifically within the straight male community? There's going to have to be more visibility in TV shows and then media commercials. Specifically, I mean, uh, right before I came up here to start this with you, there was a commercial for Victoria, and the entire commercial, I didn't see any anything relatable to it that any heterosexual man would see themselves in. There was not a moment in the commercial for that, and I think that's a big disservice to the entire country to the entire world yeah almost like almost like heterosexual males are impacted by hiv almost like it's like this is not for you almost like like uh like if there was something for like menstruation or something like that like you know obviously that's something for women specifically it's almost like the the commercials are kind of like catered to this is not for you guys yeah and that's a big problem because um, the numbers don't lie. And the highest number being affected right now is the heterosexual community, especially women. 
heterosexual wow. women are the highest number of new infections. Wow. Um, how can we, regardless of status, like destigmatize being positive in our communities? I just have the conversations, like as uncomfortable as it is. I mean, there's so many different routes to start the conversation. I've started it multiple ways. Like you can start it through music. You can go back and think Easy E passed away from it. Mm. Freddie Mercury passed away from it. I mean, so many different celebrities have dealt with it. So many different shows are starting to have characters that live with it. There's, uh, I mean, there's just so many different routes to start into these conversations. And it's, it's okay to misspeak. It's okay to not know. That's how you learn. Oh, that, that right there, you just hit something on the head for me, man. Like there's so much fear in saying something wrong today like that we tend to not say anything at all right like oh my gosh do I have permission to say this um yeah like I would much rather like somebody misspeak and me have a teachable moment right I'm never going to like down talk to anyone, especially in that arena. And I would rather have a teachable moment than to not have a moment at all. Yeah. That's good. That's really good. I I think, you know, we kind of talked a few weeks ago um, and there was one of the things that kind of stood out to me in that conversation. We were talking about you equals you. I think yeah. is what it was called. And uh, and that was the first time that I heard about that. So I, I would love for you to kind of talk through what you equals you means, what that campaign is, and kind of how that impacts things uh, across the board. That was actually started by a man named Bruce Ward. And it's a huge uh, international study that has been done with, um, I f- can't remember the exact number of couples around the world. But you equals you means undetectable equals untransmittable. So undetectable means that your meds are working so well that the levels of virus in your blood are untraceable. Like they're not detectable levels. So you get, un- you, once you hit that, you can no longer transmit the virus. You are not. You can't transmit the virus. It's been proven in thousands and thousands of couples all over the world. Mm. It's proven science now. And um, and a lot of people don't know about it. I mean, the word is still really getting out there. And it's I've, I've heard about it for years, but I'm also in the arena to hear about it. Right. And it's not being taught like it should be. It's not being spoken about like it should be. It's not being broadcast to an audience that really needs to hear it. It has really sadly become kind of locked in the echo chamber amongst advocates and, you know, just people that are already in it. Right. And it's nice to, and for Newly diagnosed, it's a great thing. It's a great message. But for someone like me that has been living with it, and I'm undetectable, but I'm, you know, when U equals U came out, I was skeptical of it. I honestly was because it was just, I was like, I was very, very leery of it. When I got diagnosed, it was all about make sure you always have condoms on you, make sure you're doing the safest practices, you know, you can Yeah. protect not only yourself, but your partner. And then you equals you came out and it was like, oh no, if you're on your meds and you're taking your meds correctly, like there's not, you know, a whole lot you really need to worry about. Like you're, you're doing what you're supposed to do. And nobody had ever talking 
had ever spoken that way before. Yeah. Um, and and I guess like treating it, is it just like a pill or is it like you have to like, I guess you say, you said you can't give yourself like a shot. So is it just like, like regular pills like anybody else would take for like? Uh, for me, it's a little bit different. And for most people, yeah, it's a pill. Okay. And you can get, uh, you can get some one pill a day. Okay. Wow. There's certain uh, regiments that are one pill a day. Like a lot of the commercials you're seeing like now on TV are for one pill a day. Mm. They just, um, the FDA just approved a new shot, which is every six months they would go to the doctor and get long, it's a long acting injectable that was just approved by FDA six months. So twice a year. How, twice a year. How long, that's crazy. How long does it generally take to become HIV positive and then to be, to treat it so well that it becomes undetectable? Like, I guess on average, like, okay, I just got it. If I do the right thing for the next year, a year from now, I'll be at this, this undetectable status. Is it, is there like an average time frame? Or is it just like, just varies like all over the place for different people? I know people that have been diagnosed and been undetectable within a month. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. That's awesome. So yeah, the, the meds have gotten extremely, extremely better over the past 20 something years that I've been in the arena. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and they're getting better and better every day. There's new stuff coming out every day. It's really interesting to watch the medical advancements, especially for me for the cardiac side and for the HIV stuff. I mean, I'm watching all of it. Yeah. Um, how do you think homophobia in the world shapes like our public discourse about HIV? And it. When it comes to HIV, it very much shapes the entire narrative. Because for years, it was, that's a gay disease. It's something we don't worry about. It's something we don't have to worry about. It doesn't happen to us. It can't happen to us. And the thing you have to remember is, even if you're in a relationship or you're not, whatever, you're not chained to that other person 24-7. You don't know what's happening the rest of their day. Mm -hmm. You don't know who they interacted with, how they interacted with them, were they safe about it, were they not safe about it. And that's not just speaking about HIV. There's a lot of other things in the world. There are a lot, a lot of other things to be concerned about when you start talking about sexual activity. Um, no, you're right about that. You're right about that. And, you know, there's certain things that people are saying now or doing now that I've heard about that, like, people having different types of sex, especially young people. Like, oh, I didn't have, like, vaginal sex. So I'm still a virgin he, you know, he, we did other things, you know, trying to, those yeah. sorts of things, um, you still bring, like, to me, in my, from my personal opinion, like, you're still, you're still being sexually active. So, like, just, you're 100% correct in what you're saying. I think that we have to have a different relationship just with sex culturally as well at this point. Like, it was such, like, it's, it's so easily and available at this point that, it's, it's just, it's like, it's just, out, to me, it's just like out of, getting out of control. Um, and so, I mean, the scary thing to me is like everybody is so comfortable saying the meanest, rudest things you could imagine to complete strangers on the internet. Well, mm. will run away if you try to sit them down and have an honest conversation yep. about sex. We're not trying to learn. We're trying yeah. to, we're trying to get likes and retweets and 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 bring you into the misery <laughs> that yeah. we're feeling right now. <laughs> and it's really sad that that's what the world has come to. But yeah, like as 
as connected as we are now, we're further apart than we've ever been. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why, you know, we talked about it earlier. Like, you know, everybody's looking down, look up, like look at the people that are around you, understand their story, understand that while their story personally doesn't impact you today, it could impact you tomorrow, right? Like those things, like we're all interconnected. And I think that people just tend to forget that stuff. Like we all need each other. Like we all need, like, like the doctor needed you to be the person that you are so that they could get your chart. But he also needed, or she needed the student <laughs> to tell you, you know what I mean? Like, but she couldn't apply the test. You needed somebody else to apply the test. Like we all need each other. Like it's so crazy that we live in, in a society where we're, we're, we're not allowing those opportunities to take place anymore. And it's because people forget to look up. <laughs> that it's, look up moment is, that can change your life. That's it. I mean, that's what, I mean, Twitter, I mean, me just happening to stumble upon that one tweet brought us here today. Yep. Yep. I mean, we're literally right now the epitome of look up. Yep. So just, just, I got two more questions for you, man. Um, what are five pieces of advice? So I, I, I just got diagnosed with HIV. What are five pieces of advice that you could say to me right now? Uh, breathe. Mm. A lot of people forget to breathe. Yeah. And <laughs> breathing is very important. Two is it's not a death sentence. Mm. You're not going anywhere. There's plenty of options medically. Plenty. There's more than there have ever been. And it's better than it's ever been. Three is don't forget to laugh. Mm. Don't forget to have fun. Don't forget to enjoy your life. Four would be learn. Learn about it. Read about it. Empower yourself. Don't ever walk into a doctor's office again without feeling like they can talk to you like they're like a peer. You want to be able to know their language. Learn their vernacular. Don't ever put yourself in a scenario medically where you feel like you're being talked down to. Mm. And five would be find your playlist. <laughs> Build your playlist for those bad days. Have a bad day playlist. So many people forget to make a bad day playlist. Do you have one? I have. I have. A couple of bad day playlists. All right, we're gonna we're gonna uh, I'm gonna try to get those links from him, and uh, <laughs> to kind of give people some a starting point. If like you will. it's some rage stuff. I mean, there's some there's some stuff like when you're having bad days, like that you need to just like get it out. Like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with having those moments. People like to get down on themselves when they have those kind of break moments, but. Everybody needs it, whether you're in your car by yourself and you just need to crank the music up, go for it. Yeah. Add that bad day playlist that can reset your entire day. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Um, and then my last question to you, DRAC, is what do you hope to achieve through your advocacy and work around HIV in the heterosexual community? I hope that I'm around long enough to be irrelevant. I really hope I'm around long enough that it is cured. I hope that there's no need for this. Mm. I hope one day there is not a need for us to have these conversations. I love it. That is my goal. My goal is to make myself irrelevant. That these conversations are happening without me having to be the one that starts. That's powerful. Man, thank you. Thank you for today. 
Um, Thank you so much. This was awesome. This was this was. I was listen the whole day. I have I'm 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 mentally buckling my seatbelt, getting ready for the ride. I'm getting ready to go down with you. Um, and this was this was better, different than what I thought it was going to be. So thank you so much for the time. Um, I do got one other question. This is good. This is a spur of the moment thing. And I'll, if, if I need yeah. to like cut things, I will to make it a little bit shorter. I need one track from you, like one song from you to end the podcast. Oh, one song. Oh, man, you're putting me on the spot. Yep. Oh, from the Bad Day playlist. Let me see. No, no, no. It could be from anywhere. It doesn't have to be It doesn't have to be from that playlist. It could be any song. Oh, any song. Yep. Um, let's go with uh, Journey, Don't Stop Believing. I love it. I love it. Hey, that man. good song. Everybody knows. Everybody has seen loud. That's when I hold the mic out over the crowd and they sing louder than the music. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah, those are the moments that I live for right there. I like to hear a crowd louder than singing the song back to me louder than it's coming through the speakers. D-Rec, once again, it's been a pleasure. This is the Who, What, How podcast. I think we know who you are now. I think we know what you stand for. And I think we know every bit about how you plan to attack it. And I thank you for your time. And I thank you for your energy. God bless you, man. See ya. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Who, What, How podcast. If you enjoyed it, go ahead and hit the subscribe button and share it with a friend. And we'll see you next time. Peace. And one love.